This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm your host, Eamon Ormseth. Before we begin, a few news briefs. On Wednesday, December 20th, UN Humanitarian Chief Martin Griffiths said that the continuation of the brutal conflict in Gaza is an indelible stain on our collective conscience. The death toll in the besieged strip hit at least 20,000 on Tuesday, according to the media office in Gaza. This number does not include the many Palestinians who are dead under the rubble. IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari said on Wednesday evening, December 20th, that the IDF is intensifying the fighting in the Gaza Strip. This announcement came as details continued to surface about the killing of three Israeli hostages by the Israeli army in Gaza. The hostages had been dressed in civilian clothes and waving a white flag before they were shot. Abdul Malik Badruddin al-Houthi, the leader of the Ansara law group in Yemen, has threatened to target U.S. battleships in response to any attack against Yemen. We will not stand idly by if the Americans have a tendency to escalate and commit foolishness by targeting our country, al-Houthi said in a speech on Wednesday. Last November, the Ansara Law Group announced that it would target any ship owned or operated by Israel in the Red Sea until Israel allows for food and fuel to be brought into the besieged Gaza Strip. Today, I'm joined by Josh Paul. Josh recently resigned from the State Department after over 11 years working as a director in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs, which is responsible for U.S. defense diplomacy, security assistance, and arms transfers. He previously worked on security sector reform in both Iraq and the West Bank, with additional roles in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, U.S. Army staff, and as military legislative assistant for Representative Steve Israel. Josh grew up between London and New York and holds master's degrees from the universities of Georgetown and St. Andrews, Scotland. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, I mean, thank you very much for having me. Josh, you were a director in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs in the State Department. Can you tell us what was your average day at work like? Sure. So the Bureau of Political Military Affairs in the State Department is responsible essentially for America's defense diplomacy. And it's really a fascinating portfolio that covers the world, touching on everything from uh, security negotiations and agreements that enable U.S. forces to forward deploy around the world with legal protections to security cooperation with key partners, including managing about $7 billion a year Uh, in a typical year anyway, in security assistance, taxpayer-funded grant assistance, that is. And it's also responsible for authorizing the transfer of arms uh, to partners around the world to the tune of about $180 billion a year through various mechanisms. So in my role, I was particularly involved in sort of the strategic planning for the Bureau, the strategic communications, the bridge with Congress, uh, which is, of course, a vital one in that Congress both provides the funding that we use for military assistance and also authorizes, or at least, you know, gets to, is notified of all major arms transfers to partners around the world. And in that capacity, I was also responsible, or one of those responsible for approving major arms transfers to partners as they go to congressional notification. So my day-to-day work in the Bureau entailed, I would say it breaks into paperwork and meetings, right? In bureaucracy, there's always paperwork. And all of these major arms transfers sort of come around over email for folks to weigh in on, to debate, to discuss and ultimately to approve or to to sort of, you know, question. And then, of course, then going up to the Hill and selling these, as it were, uh, convincing Congress to provide the funding we need, convincing Congress to approve the arms transfers that uh, we were trying to advance. Okay, thank you. It sounds like you had a lot on your plate uh, at the State Department. Uh, I'm hoping we can get into some of these uh, 
areas of your your previous position in, in our interview, specifically the process of congressional notification, what role Congress plays in uh, the transfer and sale of weapons to other countries. Um, but first, I wanted to ask you uh, about your resignation. You resigned from your position on October 18th, uh, I believe, uh, in a letter published to LinkedIn. Josh, why did you resign from your position? Yeah, uh, so I, I resigned for three main reasons, uh, the first of which was in the uh, wake of October 7th, uh, we saw Israel's military operation commencing in Gaza. And already by the time I resigned, uh, over 2000 uh, Palestinians had been killed in that. And so the, the key point for my resignation was we do not provide US arms uh, to kill civilians. It's simply not what we are there to do. Uh, it's not what they are for. Uh, and yet here was a situation in which thousands had already died and it was clear that thousands more would die. And yet we were rushing lethal arms to Israel to continue this, this operation. Um, so that was the first reason. The second reason was, of course, this comes on top of uh, decades of what is essentially a failed policy. Uh, you know, our approach has been that if we provide Israel with this military assistance, uh, with these arms, uh, it will feel secure enough to make the concessions that are necessary to make the Oslo process work and to lead ultimately to Palestinian statehood. Uh, what it has been doing, however, is essentially feeling so secure that it feels it does not have to make any concessions. Uh, and that is why I think we are further from uh, a peace process and from you know the successful culmination of Oslo now than we have ever been. Uh, and yet the third reason was when I tried to raise these concerns, uh, both about how the weapons we were transferring were being used now, uh, and about the fact that this is all in support of or furtherance of a, a moribund policy, there was no interest whatsoever in having that discussion. There was simply a desire both in the executive branch and in Congress, uh, as there remains today, to continue to rush weapons as quickly as possible uh, to Israel for its use in the Gaza conflict. Uh, so, you know, given those factors and given the absence of any opportunity to debate them within government, uh, the only place I felt where there was space to debate them was outside government. And to do that, I had to resign. The Intercept reported, uh, it may have been yesterday, that the uh, Biden or the Pentagon has created a so-called Tiger Team uh, with, the, I believe, the title of the Israel Significant Initiatives Group, which is... Uh, located within the Army's Defense Exports and Cooperation Office, which oversees policy for U.S. arms sales with the express purpose of expediting these arms sales. It sounds like you objected internally uh, to the expediting of arms sales and you didn't succeed. Is that? Um, yes. Yeah, that's entirely fair. And I think the evidence of that is, as you say, uh, in both the significant initiatives group in uh, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army's office or DASADEC, uh, where I used to work, actually, um, and also uh, of this Tiger team in the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. There, there are these two entities, uh, both of which have essentially been stood up because um, the, the existing processes, which have worked so extensively uh, to advance and to expedite arms sales for an arms transfer, for example, to Ukraine, are not working fast enough for what they are trying to do for Israel, uh, which I think tells you a lot, unfortunately. Despite the evidence uh, that these weapons are being used to target civilians, can you help us understand what the State Department does to, number one, make that assessment? Or is that your own assessment that these weapons that the United States is giving or selling to Israel are being used to target civilians? Yeah, that's a, a good and really complicated question, because the basic answer is that the US, US government doesn't really assess how its weapons are used. 
uh, after we provide them to a partner. We have something called end-use monitoring, um, but that exists essentially to make sure that weapons we provide to one partner are not being illicitly retransferred to another partner uh, or are not being illegally re-engineered or reverse-engineered. Uh, it does not look at how the weapons are actually used. Um, there is a new mechanism that has just been introduced called the Civilian Harm Incident Response Guidelines. Uh, and because everything we do in government is an acronym, uh, that's the CHURG. Um, and, and that theoretically exists to collect information about um, civilian casualties that occur as a result of US weapons that we have transferred to partners. Um, and to feed that into then the decision-making process about future arms transfers. Uh, this is a new process that was just created uh, late this summer. Um, and I think they are still working through, they are, as I understand it, beginning to collect some information uh, based on press reporting and NGO reporting about what is happening in Gaza. Um, but it is not clear how that will actually affect any future decisions, uh, because, of course, those decisions are, are political at the end of the day. Uh, and there's no political appetite to change what is happening. Um, so that's a, a long way of saying, uh, I think it is clear that US arms are being used to kill civilians. And in fact, Amnesty International has had a very compelling report on a couple of such incidents. Um, but there is no real mechanism within the State Department or anywhere in US government uh, that would take that information and then drive it into a, a determinative policy. Okay. you just said that at the end of the day, these are political decisions. To date, there there haven't been there hasn't been a mechanism uh, to date, except for perhaps this this new CHIRG, the Civilian Harm Incident Response Guidance. I, reading your resignation letter, um, it sounds like there was a very top down approach to approving these weapons transfers and. Um, reading other sort of reporting about the State Department at this time, it sounds like there's very little appetite for dissent on uh, the transfer of these weapons. Yeah, that's right. Um, for most arms transfers, it's it's sort of a bottom-up process. Uh, the partner comes in and says, we would like X. Um, the Defense Department will work on them to figure out in a bit more detail what exactly X is. Uh, that then comes to State, where there is a policy review, um, and where there is the chance to sort of work out some of the problems that might be inherent in some of these potential transfers uh, in terms of, you know, uh, civilian harm or in terms of human rights or in terms of regional policy. And then the major arms transfers then get notified to Congress, who as well have a process. And we can talk about that to review these cases to, to raise you know their concerns. And so that that is how it, it normally works in the case of Israel, particularly since October 7th. It has been a top-down process. So Israel has come in with these requests, but there is also, at the same time, this top-down guidance that says, approve these immediately. Do not wait, do not debate, just move forward. And, and that's what's really been different here, is that there hasn't been the space for that bottom-up process that existed, frankly, even during the Trump administration. There was always space, there was always time for these concerns to be brought to bear and to find ways to you know, mitigate some of the worst potential outcomes whether by looking at what was in the sale itself or whether by working with a partner to address some of those concerns, that just hasn't been the case uh, for, for the arms transfers that we are rushing to Israel now. So I wanted to zoom out a bit and make note of the laws that govern some of these arms transfers, the Arms Export Control Act of 76, the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961. I understand there are actually in a way, two versions of the Leahy Law, one for the State Department and one for the defense appropriations. You said that there's a directive 
coming down from the top to approve these transfers at the same time as we have laws on the books that require certain criteria to be met for these arms transfers to occur. Are these arms transfers occurring in violation of U.S. law? So I think there is an argument to be made that they are. However, there is also a lot of space for the executive branch to interpret the laws, and the courts defer extensively to the executive branch when it comes to foreign policy and defense policy. So, for example, you mentioned both the Arms Export Control Act and Foreign Assistance Act, and those laws are very clear that U.S. arms can only be used for the purposes for which they were provided. And I think I would argue, and many have argued, that human rights abuses, uh, massive civilian casualties, are not a purpose for which U.S. arms are provided. But the law doesn't spell that out. And that's where, for example, the State Department, the Defense Department have for you know generations taken the view that what that means is that they shall not be illicitly retransferred rather than they shall not be used to kill thousands of civilians. So I think there is a case to be made that, that these are, are being done illegally. Similarly, you mentioned the Leahy law. The Leahy law says that we cannot provide arms or security assistance, it says, to units that are credibly implicated in gross violations of human rights. The problem is that there is no forcing factor for the department to make such a determination. So, you know, we can always say, look, we, we've looked at this, we're looking at this, but we haven't, as we do in the case of Israel, we haven't reached a conclusion that a gross violation of human rights has occurred, therefore we will continue to provide the arms. So is is the letter of the law being followed? Perhaps. Is the spirit of the law being followed? No, absolutely not. The defense appropriations version of the Leahy law contains a waiver for extraordinary circumstances, which I wonder if that's been used in the case of some of these arms transfers to Israel. I, I, I don't believe to... it has, because yeah. I think the way the law works is you have to, first of all, trigger the Leahy law by saying that you have found a credible gross violation of human rights, and then you can waive that. In the case of Israel, you know, under the system that exists now, we have never found uh, that a gross violation of human rights has occurred. The mechanism is either failing or not, doesn't even exist in the first place in the case of Israel to determine if Israel is commuting human rights violations, in which case the law cannot be applied because there's no determination. Yeah, that's correct. And I mean, this is the case across a number of authorities that exist for the transfer of arms, not only as it relates to Israel. There was a government accountability office study that came out just about two months ago, looking at the law on transnational repression. If a country is engaged in a pattern of transnational repression, i.e. they are killing their citizens or arresting their citizens overseas for complaining about what their government is doing, we cannot provide arms. But there is no mechanism in place, as the GAO found, to actually conduct those assessments. So the law is, is one important piece of all this, but ultimately, in the absence of really binding determinative law, it comes down to questions of policy. It's been well reported. There's a $14 billion assistance, military assistance, with a little bit of a humanitarian aid in there for Israel, and I understand a little bit for the humanitarian situation in Gaza. And there was just recently the transfer of about $100 million of tank ammunition to Israel. I saw that you criticized that transfer as well. I wanted to focus on one transfer that actually has not gone through yet, which is the purchase of about 24,000 assault rifles by the Israeli government for the use in so-called local defense teams. This sale was reported on over a month ago, perhaps a month and a half ago. State Department sent an informal notification for the sale to Congress. But I understand that several leaders on the Senate Foreign Relations and House Foreign Affairs Committees objected. And just a few days ago, there was reports that the sale has actually still not gone through. Number one, what type of sale is this? And why has it taken this shape so far? 
Yeah, so these are actually three separate sales, uh, totaling about 24,000 fully automatic rifles for uh, the Israeli security forces. And during the review process for these, concerns were raised within the department because some of the units that would be eligible to receive these firearms are units that you know, have been looked at in the Leahy process. Again, there's been no conclusion, but they are alleged to have been involved in crimes like extrajudicial killings. I.e. murder, torture, and other potential gross violations of human rights. In addition, Israeli Minister Ben Gvir is in the process of trying to set up these essentially citizen militias of settlers in the West Bank uh, to whom he would like to provide some of these firearms. So these sales went to Congress where there is an informal process before sales are formally notified in which the House Foreign Affairs Committee and Senate Foreign Relations Committee get to ask questions, get to sort of poke and prod. In this case, it took about two days for them, both Democrats and Republicans on both committees, to come back and say, we're good with this, please move forward. After that, as I understand it, there were, as you mentioned, a couple of uh, members, both on the Senate and the House side, who reached out directly to the administration and said, look, we understand that our uh, committee chairs and rankings have approved this, but we have concerns particularly about their potential use by the militias in the, the settler militias in the West Bank please get more assurances from the Israelis that these will not go to those units before you move forward with the sale. And my understanding is that essentially ever since then, the department has been engaged in a back and forth with Israel, trying to get written assurances that they will not go to these units. The sale has still not occurred. Sounds like the US government is not getting what it wants from the Israeli government in terms of assurances. Yeah, um, I think I think I think that's probably right. It's also possible but unlikely that the the transfers actually what they might have done is come back with new requests for a smaller more requests for a smaller number of firearms in each request and that would not require congressional notification. So it's quite possible the department has actually issued or transferred or authorized the transfer of these firearms without going through the congressional process but but I think that's unlikely. I think the most likely is that the the discussion with Israel remains ongoing. On another sale that I just mentioned a few minutes ago, there was the sale of $100 million of tank ammunition to Israel, and the reporting on that said Congress was bypassed. What do reporters mean by that when they say Congress was bypassed? Why could Congress be bypassed if that's indeed the case? So the Arms Export Control Act that we've been discussing has several provisions, and the one in question is under Section 36B of, of the Arms Export Control Act. Let's say essentially if the president or delegated to the secretary of state determined that there is an emergency, they can waive or get rid of the congressional notification process, tell Congress that they're doing it and provide the arms immediately. And that's essentially what they did, or that is what they did for this tank ammunition. There was a case that was put before Congress for about 45,000 rounds of tank ammunition. Again, it goes to the House Foreign Affairs Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where the Republicans of both committees cleared it or approved it almost immediately. But the Democrats were asking questions, as they should be, out of concern of how these would be used. You know, there was an incident on October 13th where civilians, including a Reuters reporter, were killed by an Israeli-fired tank shell in Lebanon. And so the, there were concerns being raised. And in the face of those concerns, uh, even though there was plenty of time theoretically to work through these issues, within the normal framework, the administration pulled the trigger on this emergency use for about 14,000 of those 45,000 shells and has shipped them immediately to Israel. So it sounds like the executive branch has a good amount of discretion to, number one, invoke some of these determinations of uh, emergency and either shorten or 
entirely bypass a system of accountability, which is what Congress is designed to provide. That's correct. You know, the law says that if the secretary determines that there is an emergency, he can do this. Uh, it doesn't say what constitutes an emergency. That's entirely up to the executive branch to determine. You know, after President Trump used this exact same authority to push through over Congress's objections, arms transfers to the Saudi-led coalition for use in Yemen, uh, there was an effort made in Congress to revisit some of these authorities. The National Security Powers Act that was advanced by Senator Murphy, uh, for example, would have revisited what exactly an emergency is. Whereas on the House side, even House Republicans were looking at the question of, can we limit this authority in some way to certain types of arms, to certain types of uh, emergencies, to certain timelines? But nothing was ever done, nothing ever passed. So the laws remain as they are, as, as abused by President Trump, and as I would argue, as now abused by President Biden. Within this $14 billion, there was there were some clauses inserted to expedite or yeah. make less transparent some of these arms transfers to Israel at the same time as there's movement on making arms transfers more transparent for Ukraine. Is that an accurate yeah, characterization? That's, that's a very accurate characterization. So what you're talking about in, in reality is something called the War Reserve Stockpile Ammunition-Israel, WARSA-I. This is one of many American pre-positioned ammunition stockpiles around the world. The difference for Warsaw I is that upon a determination of the Secretary of Defense, Israel can draw weapons out of it directly. And what the legislation currently before Congress and the supplemental proposes is essentially that America can throw in as much weaponry, including new weapons, as it wishes to, and Israel can draw those out without any limitation. So it creates, essentially creates a free-flowing pipeline that doesn't go through the regular notification process to Congress, uh, in fact, only has to be notified after it has been done, uh, after the war is over, essentially, and, and provides a mechanism just to flow arms from DOD stockpiles directly uh, into, into uh, Israeli hands. I just mentioned at the beginning of the interview, this Tiger team, it, there seems to be a sophisticated strategy across the executive branch to use uh, multiple U.S. laws to expedite arms transfers to Israel. It's, it's wanted... not, if I can, it, it's not only U.S. laws that something like the Tiger team is there to address. Uh, it's also, for example, production timelines. Uh, so we have a major problem right now and have had really since the war in Ukraine started in terms of producing enough defense material for our needs, for our allies in Europe and for partners like Ukraine. Um, and there's only so much capacity in the U.S. defense industrial base. Uh, and that is something the administration was grappling with prior to October 7th and prior to, uh, you know, the, the current crisis uh, in Israel and, and, West, and, and Palestine. Um, and so part of what the Tiger team will be doing is looking at processes as well to identify any opportunities to speed things up. Okay. Um, yeah, so what I want, I wanted to, you know, finish up by talking a little bit more about the overall philosophical framework that the war between Israel and Hamas, the Gaza conflict, is taking place in, in the U.S. specifically, 9-11 brought the beginning of the, the global war on terror, which introduced a lot of new powers for the government, including surveillance, including arm transfers, and as we know, in occupied Palestine, Israel is a belligerent occupier, is violating international law. The State Department is collecting information on this, but it's not influencing their decisions. And so 
I suppose, what's the way forward in a situation where there is no accountability for violations of international law? Yeah, I think that's, I think accountability is a really important question. First, I want to just back up, though, and talk about that comparison to the post 9-11 global war on terror, because I think there are some differences and also some lessons. And the differences, of course, are the politics specific to Israel-Palestine. This is not like where you have an al-Qaeda that is just jumping up seeking to overthrow the United States, seeking to overthrow Western government. That's that's not what Hamas is. That doesn't mean that Hamas's methods are acceptable anyway. You know, the attacking of civilians, the killing of civilians is gross and outrageous and must be condemned. But there is a political context here that doesn't apply in the same way that the global war on terrorism sort of, you know, looked at it. There's also an on-the-ground context here. So having been, for example, very involved in the Second Battle of Fallujah. I was uh, responsible for reconstituting the Iraqi police after that battle in Fallujah, where the US provided warning for months that we were going to go in. A lot of people got out, no doubt, including uh, some, some militant combatants. But we didn't go in for as long as we could hold off while there were civilians in the city. And once they, this, the battle was over, the civilians moved back in. Again, the difference here is that Palestinians carry the memory of the Nakba and are not going to leave and anyway are being targeted right now in a way that the US would never do in terms of the disproportionality, in, in terms of the lack of attention to where civilians are, etc, etc. There are lessons as well in that, look, the, the ultimate answer here is, is there is not a military answer to Hamas, there is a political answer. If you want to defeat Hamas at the end of the day, the way to do that is to provide Palestinians with statehood, with the liberty, with the independence, with the sovereignty that they have been seeking for, for generations, that is how you ultimately deal with this. And I think we have seen in our own experience what happens when you pursue a, a military solution only, but fail to take into account some of the politics of a place like Afghanistan, for example, right? So I think based on both our experiences and our lessons that we have you know, learned in, in the course of the global war on terrorism, there's just no comparison and and many missed lessons uh, in what Israel is doing now in Gaza. In terms of the, the broader public debate, I think I've been very concerned about the lack of space for that debate, obviously initially within government, but since coming out of government, I've also heard from many people who are terrified to speak up because they will lose their jobs, even if their jobs have nothing whatsoever to do with Israel-Palestine. I've heard from lawyers, I've heard from doctors. Also, of course, we see what is happening to many student movements that are being, you know, kicked off of campuses, students that are being doxxed by well-funded organizations that are there essentially to intimidate people by putting their faces and names up on, on websites. We've seen, you know, job offers withdrawn from students. So I'm I'm very concerned, and I'm I'm, I'm very concerned not only in the present moment about what this is doing and this clamping down on free speech, but what this for stages for American uh, democracy in the future, if there is an issue here where voices will be shut up, uh, where people will be afraid to speak up, I, I guarantee you there will be other issues in the future and, and other groups uh, where the same challenges to free speech exist. You uh, closed your resignation letter by saying part of your approach to the world is to try to find beauty everywhere. It's been a hard few months for many people, I'm guessing yourself included. Where are you finding beauty today, Josh? That is... A very difficult question. Um, I'm finding beauty, first of all, uh, you know, we were just talking about the, the lack of, of space in America to protest, but in the protest movement, and particularly in the leadership that has been shown by so many in the Jewish community, I think it's it's both fascinating and, and also deeply moving. You know, I was having meetings on the Hill with members a few weeks ago, 
And there was some singing that we heard down the corridor. And so I sort of poked my head out and went to look. And it was actually in Hakim Jeffrey's office. And there were a group of Jewish students sitting on the floor of his office uh, singing peace songs. I, I literally had to walk out so I wouldn't sort of burst into tears. It was incredibly moving. So I think there is beauty there. I think there is beauty in the many voices that are speaking up uh, around the world to call for a ceasefire. You know, I stood outside the White House last week with a large group of current administration officials who were there to lay flowers on the ground in memory of losses over the last you know weeks, and particularly since the last temporary ceasefire lapsed. And there's beauty in that as well. So I think there is there is still a lot of beauty to be found. Uh, and and that's where it's it's from that beauty that peace will emerge. Well said, Josh Paul, former director in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs at the U.S. State Department. Thank you for speaking out. Thank you for your time. And I wish you the best. Thank you very much for having me and uh, happy holidays to all your listeners.